Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Moses is a big deal in the Bible. I mean, he was the man in the Old Testament. But if you read closely the story of Moses in the book of Exodus, you have to ask yourself some questions. Like, how did Moses know that he was an Israelite and not an Egyptian when he was raised virtually his whole life in the palace of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son? And how did he know that he was to be the deliverer of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt for the same reason? And did Pharaoh ever actually really buy in to the thought that Moses was his grandson? Did that, did that really sit well with Pharaoh? Well, those are some of the questions that we're going to ask and answer in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So uh, today I thought we'd switch things up and start in Acts chapter 7. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to rush too fast now. Got to take our time. Don't want to miss something. Uh, but we probably will spend a lot of the day in Genesis again because we're going to jump off here for a minute for something that I think is interesting. So, uh, but we're going to start in Acts chapter seven. And uh, remember, this is Stephen giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. He's been arrested because guys are lying about him. And um, one thing I don't want us to miss in this is that this is a life and death situation for Stephen. This is a very serious moment because the consequence of if he's found guilty here is that he could face execution because uh, the uh, Old Testament... Uh, punishment for blasphemy, which is what he's being brought, the charges that are being brought against him, uh, blasphemy against God, uh, that is, uh, if you're found guilty of that, it's a sin punishable by death, by stoning. So uh, this is what he has been arrested for. This is what they're going to determine about him. And so uh, Stephen's life is literally on the line here. And uh, and he knows it, 
Everybody knows it. And so this is his defense of uh, the charges that have been brought against him. And this is his uh, way of trying to tell them. In the end, what he's going to tell them is, not me, but you. I'm not guilty of what you're charging me with. Actually, you're the guilty one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which that doesn't help him any, right? That didn't help him any at the end. But it shows, doesn't it? And we see it with Peter and John and all the disciples and with Stephen that there's something more important than life. There's something more important than being found guilty of blasphemy or whatever the charge might be that would cause them to lose their lives. There's something more important, and that is to be faithful to Christ. And, and even in a life and death situation, you don't pull your punches. You don't compromise. You don't pussyfoot around. You don't mince your words. You stay faithful and you proclaim what you proclaim. You proclaim the truth without compromise, without apology, and then you leave it in God's hands as to what the result might be. And that's something that's still hard for us to do today. Uh, I mean, there have been many times in my own life where I've pulled a punch because I didn't want to upset someone or I didn't want to be seen too weird or, you know, whatever the case may be. I think we've all been guilty of that. We've been in certain situations, you kind of pull back. But we should learn from people like Stephen, you don't pull back. The truth is the truth is the truth. We have nothing to be apologetic for. As a matter of fact, those people who were in the midst of, they need to be apologetic. We have nothing to be apologetic for, nothing to be fearful of, because we're in God's hands and he loves us and he'll get us through however he wants us to get through. So I want to just bring it up. We haven't really talked about that, that this is really a serious charge an important moment and a life and death situation that we're seeing here. So that said, let's start here in chapter 7, verse 9. And uh, it's what we, we, just to give us a context, we looked at this last week. Won't say much about it, but this is where we start. This is where we start today, verse 9 of chapter 7. Because, and this is Stephen uh, speaking. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him, so Pharaoh made Joseph ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers, his sons, on their first visit to Egypt. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. So we said last week, the first group that went from Canaan, the first group of Hebrews that uh, went from Canaan to Egypt, 75 people. Verse 15, then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So that's what we talked about last week. So now we're going to start new today, verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, 
the number of people in Egypt greatly increased. So what was the promise? This verse 17 is a transitional verse. It, Stephen is using this verse to transition from Abraham to Moses. So he is like fast forwarding the, the script here. He's been talking about Abraham in chapter in, in verse 16, up until verse 16. A lot of that was Abraham. Verse 16 was all about Abraham. And then in 17 now, he's transitioning. He's going to now go to Moses. Fast forward to Moses. And 17 is the transitional uh, verse to get from Abraham to Moses. And he says this promise to Abraham. What was the promise to Abraham? It's to have Abraham in covenant that his his family would be so like the stars in the sky right and part of that yes exactly and part of that was there was going to be something that was part of that so let's go back you'll find the the promise in verse 5 of chapter 7 verse 5 he gave him no inheritance here not even a foot of ground but god promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at that time abram had no child and then as part of that promise the way you know that promise is going to happen is verse 6 God spoke to uh, Abraham in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So that he's talking about Egypt, the slavery in Egypt, which of course is Moses. So this is the transition where he's bringing back Remember the promise God made to Abraham, which was that we would possess this land. But first, there would be this 400-year in another uh, of, of difficult time uh, of persecution, slavery, so forth, in another country, and that is Egypt, and that is where Moses comes in. So here he says, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, so now we're kind of fast-forwarding to Moses in Egypt. So he's part of that promise. He's now in that thing that God said would happen, the number of our people in Egypt in greatly increased. How many do you think came out of Egypt with Moses? There's 700, I mean, there were 75 that started 400 years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's possible. Okay, so the, the Leviticus actually tells us that when they left Egypt, there were 600,000 men. Wow. They don't give us the women and the children. So, I mean, you know, easily a million. And depending on how many women and children, you know, could have been 1.2, 1.5, it's hard to say. But, but easily, you can imagine there were a million at least. So from 75 people, 400 years later, you have uh, a million a million and a half, somewhere in that neighborhood. So yeah, greatly increased is certainly a good way to describe it, isn't it? Verse 18, then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. The, the word that's used there in, in my, uh, do any of y'all have any other thing other than then another king in your translation? A new king. A new king. In the original Greek, it's really called a different king, a different king. And another really isn't, doesn't do it justice. A different king, what you need to understand when it talks about a different king is a king of a different kind. 
not just a different king. Still have been called Pharaoh. Yeah, so called Pharaoh, but it was a different kind of Pharaoh when it came to the Israelites. Uh, so, to, no, no, no political statements before I even even say this. This is just this is just a comment, okay? This is just a comment, okay? So Joe Biden is a different, not just a different president than Trump, not just another president after Trump. Biden is a different kind of president than Trump. Can we all agree on that? Okay, all right, so that's good enough. So, so this is what's happening in Egypt. It's a different kind of king, a different kind of pharaoh, whereas the previous pharaoh back in uh, Joseph's day was kind. I mean, after all, Joseph saved the nation. The famine was also happening in Egypt. They also would have had nothing to eat had it not been for Joseph, who had the dream and who knew that seven years of plenty, you need to warehouse your goods because seven years of famine are coming. So Joseph got Egypt through this difficult time. He was a hero. He was made the prime minister. He was, and all the, uh, the, the Hebrews at the time were seen favorably. But now 400 years later, over, over time, a different king has come. Now, instead of 75 people who aren't a threat, you have a million plus who are a threat. Some people even say that there were probably more Israelites in Egypt than Egyptians in Egypt at this point. Maybe, maybe not, but it was enough to be a threat. So this different kind of king, what he's going to treat the Israelites in a different kind of way, right? Just like Biden treats people, things a different kind of way. So it's the same thing here. Yeah. Uh, this translation, you said uh, something about Joseph, uh, mm-hmm. new king, and what did your Bible say? Another king. Well, after that. Oh, uh, who knew nothing about Joseph. Well, this one said, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Yeah. No. That's that fits better. I like that better because it's hard to believe that uh, he knew, knew nothing about Joseph. Because exactly. certainly you would think that yeah, this is Joseph, crazy. but it's different when, well, I know about Joseph, but it doesn't mean anything. He doesn't mean anything to me. He's not going to set my agenda or my policy, you know. So good point. I like that. That's much better. That's one thing about translations. You you know, you have to, they don't always, and each one is different, and some do better, some do not as good. And, uh, yeah, you just have to really pay attention to that. So anyway, so anyway, we're, okay, verse 19. He, that Pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out, this is like garbage, to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Does anyone else have anything other than throw out their newborn babies? And, throw yeah, throw out. Abandon. Abandon. Mine says they would expose their infants. The point is they were to die. The whole point was, you, you know, the male babies, you had to let them die. So at that time, then, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. That is such an understatement. Uh, he was no ordinary child. So do any of you have anything other than no ordinary child? Beautiful child. Beautiful child. Lovely in the sight of God. Lovely in the sight of God. You have that one? Okay, so the word that is used here is ostios. That's the Greek word, ostios. And I had to write it down because it was too much for me to remember. So 
the Greek word osteos that is used, and it's osteos ta theos. That's the whole Greek is osteos ta theos. So osteos in the Greek, here's what it means. It's used only of Moses to describe him as possessing unusual or striking beauty. Yes, I know. Can you believe it? I mean, maybe Charlton Heston didn't do justice. I don't know. I don't know what you feel about Charlton Heston, but maybe it should have been Robert Redford or Brad Pitt or I don't know. I don't know. Right. So osios ta theos means something to God. That's different than to man. That could be. Let's go on. It says, I'm going to continue with the, with the, descri- with the definition. Originally, it described one who dwelt in a city and by consequence was well-bred. So here's what you're getting into, Mary. Was not only beautiful, but was also well-bred, cultivated, polite, urbane, sophisticated, or eloquent. Eventually, osteos came to mean comely, elegant, exquisitely beautiful, referring to excellence of form and appearance, but not necessarily character. Yeah, well, he, he, didn't, he didn't think he was beautiful. I mean, he, all he said in front of God, you know, I need to send somebody else. I can't even talk. Right, which makes you, which, which makes you wonder about the truth of that statement. Okay. Because one, a part of osteos is that sophisticated and eloquent. And then if you look down in verse 22, Moses was educated all the wisdom of the Jesus and was powerful in speech and action. So I, I questioned, you know, whether that was a, a truthful statement or if Moses was just saying, I just don't, I just don't feel, I just don't feel up to this, you know, which is understandable that he would feel that way. Sometimes as you get educated, you realize how uneducated you are. That's true. And that can be how Moses is. The more he became eloquent and was well-spoken and powerful in speech, he's like, I don't don't do well at this. Well, there's a difference between being that way from a human standpoint and by man's standards and different from having God calling you to do that. I mean, that's like, that's a whole different level. So, asios ta theos literally means beautiful, that kind of exquisite, striking, unusual beauty uh, to God, in, in God's sight, to God. Uh, and I wonder, how beautiful do you have to be for God to think you're beautiful? I mean, I don't know. That has to be, like, amazing beauty. As a matter of fact, some commentators feel that that ta theos doesn't really, the meaning isn't really that... Uh, that Moses was beautiful to God in that literal way. But what they feel it means is that what Stephen is trying to tell us here is that uh, Moses was even extraordinarily beautiful, exceedingly beautiful. In other words, the osteos itself means to have unusual or striking beauty. What Stephen is saying to us is that that's that's not really even enough to describe him. It, it needs to be even ta theos. It needs to be even, even more than that. I mean, he's he's exceedingly, unusually, strikingly beautiful. But even, even a level of, like the love of the gods, you know, the love of God Himself, that He's that kind of beautiful. They could have 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure it's probably a, a whole package because, I mean, let's face it. There are some people I've known in my life who you would maybe say, you know, they're they're pretty or they're handsome or whatever, you know, from looking at them. But when you get to know their personality and their character and their nature, they even seem more more beautiful. In other words, you know, sometimes it's not just as Mary said, it's not just your appearance, but it's a package deal where I mean, some people are just strikingly beautiful. I mean, they're just beautiful to look at. I mean, they're all people like that. But there are other people who it's a package deal where they're pretty, but it's their their inner beauty that makes them so beautiful, you know. Right. Chuck. Isn't he talking about him as a baby or all? This is him. Yes, this is him as a child, as a baby. Yeah, but, you know, I, 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 I think you start well. I think I think you start well, you finish well for the most part. Now, my mom used to tell me. And this is true. This is the truth. She used to tell me that uh, I was, I was, she used to say, Greg, you were the ugliest baby. I, uh, no, really. I ever saw. She goes, when they brought me, when they brought you to me in the hospital, I said, you must have made a mistake. This child, he cannot be my child. <laughs> I never felt bad about that. I always laughed at it. So. But, but some people got it when they're born, and some people don't got it when they're born, you know? But obviously, uh, Moses got it. So, uh, so I want to go into that because it's like no ordinary child is such a, um, you know, such a, an understatement, as it were. He was, and like I said, I mean, I don't know how beautiful you have to be to be that beautiful, but it must have been something else. Now, don't you think it goes back to his parents as well? I mean, he was a beautiful child. The, they have to have been felt touched by God. Right. I mean, it, it yeah. goes through the whole family. Yeah, Jochebed and um, Amram were his parents. And they were both from the t- tribe of Levi. So they were of the priestly uh, you know, tribe anyway. And then had Moses as their... Most mothers think their baby is beautiful. Right, well, most do. <laughs> <laughs> I, think they, I think they were touched by True enough. True enough. My mother used to say, "Beauty is as beauty does." Yeah, that's what I'd say. Wasn't that in um, what's his name? Uh, Poor Forrest Gump. Yeah, what? I think that was a big thing of Forrest Gump, wasn't it? I'm sorry, I hated that movie, but I know people. I did not like that movie, but that's just my own problem. Okay, so here we are. So now let's go on. So yeah, so this was Moses. So for three, this is continuing verse 20. For three months. he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, oh, we fast forward now to 40 years now, 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, 
Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. The first thing I want to point out is the statement in verse 25. Moses thought. That can get you in trouble. Uh, Because it doesn't say Moses prayed. It doesn't say Moses sought the Lord. It doesn't say Moses did anything of the kind to make sure that he was in God's will and what he was going to do. He may he thought he he may have had some and we're going to get into this in just a minute but he had some assurance clearly that he was called to do this thing of delivering his people from Egypt. We'll get into that in a minute. He had some confidence that that was his calling. But, and so because he had that feeling about that, he just thought, well, I can just go make it happen. He thought, okay, I'll just go do that. I'll just go get, I'll get the ball rolling or whatever he was thinking. But Moses thought that his own people would realize that he was using him to rescue them. He just thought that would happen. But he was 40 years old here, right? And God didn't use him to do that until he was, as he ended up, 80 years old. So God wasn't ready yet for this to take place. And Moses made the mistake of thinking, well, I can just, I can just go, I can just, because it's what God wants me to do, I think it's what, I think it's what God wants me to do, then I'll just go do it, and I think it's going to be fine. But that's not really the the way to do things as as children of God. We need to make sure that we're following God's plan and God's timing and God's will. And so when you think, when you think that God wants you to do something or be involved in something or go a certain way or whatever the case may be, first seek his face. Pray, ask him to make sure it's what you want he wants you to do. Open the door, direct your path, however you want to put it, but make sure God is involved at the beginning. And then make sure you kind of wait for him to open the door for you. Well, it raises, I'm sorry, it raises an interesting thing though, because he, how much time did he have to pray to the Lord? It's not like I, I'm going to go back home and pray to the Lord and then come back, maybe they'll still be fighting. No, no, this is before he went out. He goes, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, well, that's right. He says, but, but the reason he went out and did it, I think, I think he didn't think before, during, or after. You know, before, during, or after. Don't you yeah. think he killed yeah. the, the soldier in a moment without really thinking? Yeah. And then he was trying to justify? That's that brings up a great point, and that is that at that moment, yeah. Moses had a critical decision to make. Do I kill the Egyptian, or do I kill the Hebrew, the Israelite. Who do I kill? Who, whose, side, whose side do I take? But I mean, but he, he, he has to choose a side. He has to choose a side. Right? He had to either... He, well, <laughs> let's assume that walking away was not an option. <laughs> so he had to choose one side or the other. Do I take the side of the Egyptian or do I take the side of the Israelite? And then whatever happens from that happens. And as it happened, he ended up killing the Egyptian. But think about this for a minute. What did we just read about? 
a few verses before this. He was raised as the daughter, as the son, adopted son, but he was raised as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He was raised in the Egyptian culture. He was raised in the palace. But his mother had a huge part in his upbringing. Right. But from that moment, at whatever age that was, I don't. We don't really know what age it was. At some point, she, she, Jochebed, his mother, turned him over to Pharaoh's daughter, and we don't know exactly what age that would have been. But he was certainly not a baby at that point. He was a child of some kind, but of some age. But from that moment on, you don't get the feeling he spent much time with the Israelites, but you get the feeling he spent a lot of time with the Egyptians. So when it comes to this pivotal moment to choose Egyptian Israelite, Egyptian Israelite, I mean, wouldn't you think from a human standpoint he would choose the Egyptian side? Because that was what he knew most of all. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But no, he chose to take the place of the Israelite, and he killed the Egyptian as a result of that. Well, don't forget he'd gone out there. Something was pricking his mind because he's going out there to meet. He wants to get to know the Israelites from which he was descended. Exactly. Uh, so he has made it. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. At some point, he knows that he is not an Egyptian, that he is an Israelite. So that brings up, I wrote down four, four questions that this brings up. Okay, here are the four questions that this passage brings up to us. Uh, one is, how did Moses know that he was not an Egyptian? Because he spent most of his time in, in the Egyptian culture. Two, how did Moses know that God would use him to rescue his people? It says right there, uh, his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So he he thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. So he knew that God was going to use him in a way to rescue and to deliver his people. He knew this. So how did he know it? And then third, why did he run away? Why was he? Why did he run away to Midian after he killed the Egyptian? And then fourth, to answer the question that they asked, and that is verse twenty-seven: Who made you ruler and judge over us? Who made you ruler and judge over us? So, and one thing I want you to see here is that it says in verse twenty-three. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. This gets to exactly what you're talking about, Grady. The word decided there is not just that, oh, he said one day, I'm not going to go out and see the Israelites. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like just a flippant thing. The idea here in that word decided in the original Greek is that his heart was aching. His his heart called him to go and help the Israelites. The idea, I think the idea here is that, I think the idea here is that although he looked like an Egyptian from the standpoint of being educated in Egypt, uh, he had the culture of Egypt, he had the education of Egypt, uh, he certainly had learned the language of Egypt, 
but all of that was superficial. He looked like an Egyptian, but he in his heart never felt like an Egyptian. He in his heart always knew that he was a Hebrew, that he was an Israelite. First of all, his mother taught him that from very young, okay? But the other Israelites didn't know Correct. That he was an Israeli. So they thought, or Israelite, they thought, yeah, here he just comes to this royal guy, this royal guy's coming uh, trying to tell us what to do. And, um, uh, and so uh, it, 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 there's a big, huge confusion there. Of course, of course. Of course, but the motivation for, I think, you know, when you grow up as a child and you grow up in this uh, this environment, uh, that it's hard not to accept their ways and, and tie into, especially when they, 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 were, they had the wealth, they had the power, they had the culture, they had all of that. And his people are in slavery. His people are desperate and, and they don't have enough to eat and they're, you know, they're slaving away. And yet in his heart, he never tied, he never identified and tied in in his heart and spirit with the Egyptian that decided there shows that his heart was always with his people, the Israelites. But that, that's another good point because all of his life he has witnessed the mistreatment yes. of his people at the hands of the Egyptians. And that had touched his heart, right? And, and somewhere deep in his heart he identifies with the Israelites. Correct. So at 40 he just... Yeah, now he says, hey, I can't take it any longer, right? Joe? It's a strong parallel to an adopted child. Yes. Uh, and when we think about it, when a child is an infant and being a social worker in that for so many years, they go into a blended home. They may not have, they don't have familiarity with other cultures. And what happens as they get older, especially when they get in the teen years, all of a sudden they want to find who is my mom, who is my dad? Where am I from? Who am I associated with? I see this situation very parallel to that because he's discovering what his real culture is, even though he was brought up in, it'd be no different than if you had a African-American child in a Caucasian home or vice versa. Right. And you suddenly realize, oh, I need to know who I'm from and you've got to seek that out. Um, and that makes a big difference too on how you view individual people uh, as you come through that self-realization. Part of me is a, a Native American, part of me is Caucasian, but I have a favor because I'm Blackfoot and Cherokee. Mm. I wake up and then I'm really proud of that. Right. I'm also Appalachian and I'm proud of that. How do you know all that? <laughs> <laughs> because I've done the research. Um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, biologically, uh, you know, I was not adopted, but see, when you start getting into that kind of stuff, then you really start opening up different chapters in your life to help you realize, oh, this is what God is calling me to do. And when God is calling you, sometimes it's like, I don't get it. But when you wake up to it and see it, and I think with Egyptian and, 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 and an Israelite, He's waking up to reality of what his culture really is mm -hmm. and fighting for that culture eventually. Uh, but, I mean, it's a strong parallel. And, and I think sometimes we forget, particularly in adoptions or anything like that, we say, oh, no, 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 no. But then, again, they need to know what their history is. Mm, good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have that 
struggle right. their, all their lives, it's hard to do that. Stan? I see this from a different okay. perspective. Um, uh, in fact, this is partly from uh, your teaching. I, I'm a macro person, and uh, you've helped me be, learn to be a little more micro. And I never read this carefully before, but he says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. The only, re the only reason you say that is that God, you feel like God has told you that you're going to rescue them. Yes. And then you get into your point about he starts thinking, well, I'm going to go out and do it. Right. But it wasn't God's timing. And right. I never realized this before, but it's apparent to me from that statement that, that he knew at the age of 40 that God was telling him that he was going to rescue his people. Correct. He just didn't know how to do it. Correct. Like all of us, we go out and do it the wrong way. Um, but this whole, I mean, what Joe said is true on a human level. Right. But I think he he, he interceded there. Uh, well, first of all, you said he had to take sides. It was the, uh, the partly it was the, the Roman was oppressing, or it was the Roman who was the aggressor. The Egyptian. The, I'm sorry, the Egyptian mm -hmm. was the aggressor. Right. And so he was defending this person against the aggressor. But but it was it was a calling of God in his heart that he that he was answering or, or thought he was. No, right. Exactly. That's the question number two is, how did he know that he would be used by God in that way? He knew that. At 40 years old, he knew that that was going to be his calling. But how did he know it? And Thank you, but and 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 the point is what you say is exactly right. Sometimes you can know, you kind of know what God wants you to do, but you still can't leap ahead of God. You, you timing is a big part of it. Waiting for God's timing. So, like Jan and I, we're, we want to sell our house, okay? And about two years ago, we had our house sparkling clean, and you know, it's in Anderson Township. It's Turpin High School. We found a house we wanted to buy. We put an offer on it. We thought, our house is going to sell like that. I mean, it's a great neighbor. It's great. And we waited. And we waited. And people looked at it and went on out. And, and we had one offer that was so ridiculously low that we couldn't possibly even entertain it. And we finally just took it off the market. We had to say, we know God wants us to move. We have this huge house. We're just the two of us. We don't need it. Jan, you know, doesn't want to deal with all the maintenance and everything. And, and you know, thank goodness we have our kids nearby that can help us do things we need to do. But the point is, we know that God wants us to move, but that wasn't the right time. And we could have forced it maybe and taken the lower off or whatever. But at some point, we just had to say, okay, God, you're not opening that door. We know it's what you want us to do, but we're, we're and we pull, we were able to pull out of the other contract we had made, thank goodness, and we had to say, okay, then that's not what God wants us to do. And you know what? I've had that happen to me several times in my life where I felt I know what God wants me to do, and I think, okay, this is it. Remember, I kind of like Samuel, where I know this this first son is the one of Jesse. This first son is the one. Has to be. But that wasn't. He had to wait until they got to David. And the same thing. In, the same thing in my life is, and then when it's over, you say, "Well, of course it was David," you know. And the same thing in my life is like when I, at first, I'm like, "I don't understand God. Why this? Why? Why don't you make it easier for me? This is obviously what you want me to do." And then when it's over, said and done, whatever happened instead, I say. 
God, that was so much better. That was so much better. And so he knew it, but it wasn't time yet. And he tried to jump ahead of God, and that doesn't work. You should, Albert, do you have something you want to say? No, that, I can identify with what you're saying. Okay. A similar thing happened to me. Did it? Okay. Oh, yes. All right, so there you go. I'm still waiting to. <laughs> It'll happen. Yes. It'll happen. Just. My niece is living in New York City, and she's a single woman. And, and long story short is she got a promotion at work, and so she was able to find a better apartment. And the way they do it there, you know, you like share an apartment with other people. So uh, this guy had, this landlord had this apartment with three rooms. They, they rent out the rooms. And so she was the first one to look at it. And she said, I'll take it. And she put a deposit down. And, okay, this is, this is the place I want to be. But she had no idea who the next two people in were going to be. She was the first one in. And uh, so next thing you know, the landlord says, I'm sorry, you're out. She says, what do you mean I'm out? I put down a deposit. He goes, yeah. He goes, but the next person that walked in the door behind you were three girls. They're all going to move in together. I went all three rooms at one time. I don't have to worry about it. So you're out. They're in. You're out. So, of course, she's upset. She goes, what's going on here? I, I like this apartment. I, now where am I going to live? What am I going to do? So long story short is she gets contacted by this other girl, and friend of a friend of a friend, who says, we're losing our uh, third person, me and a friend of mine, two girls, uh, and we need a third. So would you be interested? And she goes, yeah, of course, of course, of course. So they say, they say to her, okay, before we make this official, we need to meet you in person and talk. <laughs> so they say, fine. So they get together, they meet at a coffee house or whatever, and they start talking. And they said, uh, there are two girls from like Texas or Oklahoma or somewhere. And um, they were friends in school and came together to New York. And, and, and my niece is a, is a devout Christian, and she preaches, and she's amazing. She's on fire for the Lord. And um, so uh, they say to her, before we do this, we just need to be honest with you about why uh, the other girl left. And uh, we don't want there to be any surprises. And so Maggie says, okay, what is it? She's thinking, you know, the worst. <laughs> and uh, the girl goes, well... We're Christians, and we don't believe that any men should be in the apartment overnight. And they go, she goes, what? Me, me too. And then the other the girl says, well, and there's one other thing we need to tell you, and that is that we don't drink. And we don't have our, she goes, me either. She goes, that's, what, that's fantastic. And, and so, so God took her from this apartment. She thought, oh, my goodness, why am I not getting this apartment? How he, you know, I put my deposit down. But God had a better, he had a better place for her to be. And it's wonderful. So we have these two Christian girls who have the same, you know, uh, uh, same Christian belief. And, and to be able to be in that environment is so much better. So, so that's, that's, you just have to sometimes wait on God to do his thing and not jump in front of him. That's going on, I think, there. Before we end today, I want let's go back to yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Green. Forty years old in those days was not not so old, was it? It was like twenty. So he was pretty immature. At that point, he was probably a little immature. When he was grown up, yeah, when he was grown up. Okay, so let's go back. I want to because this might answer some of our questions. Go back to Exodus chapter two. I said Genesis. I meant Exodus. Go back to Exodus chapter two. Maybe some of this, maybe this will answer some of our questions. So this is the birth of Moses. 
So it says, verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 2 of Exodus. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, that is uh, Amram and Jacobed. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was what? A fine child. A fine child. Okay, you want to know? What does that word fine mean in the Hebrew? The word fine means. The, fine, the word in Hebrew there, and when it talks about fine is good, pleasant, beautiful, excellent, lovely, delightful, joyful, fruitful, precious, cheerful, kind, correct, righteous, that which is good, right, virtue, happy, happiness, pleasantness. Okay, he was an unusual child, wasn't he? So where did Stephen get it? He got it from here. This is, I wish I'd been that beautiful. I wish I had. Hey, okay. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. This is made to have you remember of the ark, right? Um, pitch and tar. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So he's in an ark in the water, just like the ark was in the flood water. His basket is in the water of the Nile. Uh, verse four, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. One of the commentaries I read said that God pinched, nose, pinched <laughs> Moses just at the right time. Because there's nothing more sympathetic to a woman, right, than a crying baby, right? So, so God pinched him at just the right time. And so uh, she, he was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So let's, let's make no doubt about it. From the very moment that she first saw Moses, she knew that he was not Egyptian. She knew that he was one of the Hebrew babies. And she knew what else? That her father, the Pharaoh, had said what? No male Hebrew babies. None. I think... She was probably a teenager. I think she was probably about 18 years old, and she goes, I don't care what my dad said. I'm going to take this baby to be my own. I'm sorry, Dad. You know, like it or lump it. Because she knows. I mean, there's no doubt from the very moment. So verse 7, Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother, uh, Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Isn't that like God say things are going, things are so terrible and so bad. We've got to put Moses in this basket. Who knows what's going to happen? They didn't know. She, the, the, his mother didn't know that this was going to happen. I mean, just left it in God's hands and, 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 and not only does she get him back to nurse him, and to, she gets paid for it. <laughs> what? And so the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, and we don't know how old, but he, he says child, not baby. 
So uh, five years, six years, seven years, eight years, don't know, but a certain number of years. Uh, grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses is not an Egyptian name. That Moses uh, is, it sounds like a, a Hebrew word that means to draw out. So uh, he wasn't even given a, um, an Egyptian name. He was given a Hebrew name. And uh, it says that, um, and so the point, what, what Grady's been saying here, this is, this is the point that this beginning of his life, this foundation of his life, was what informed his life. Now, if you're the mother, and you know that at some point in the near future, you're going to have to give your son back to the Egyptians, don't you think you're really drilling it into his head? You're an Israelite. You're not an Egyptian. You're one of us. You're not one of them. Yes. Quick point. Do you remember hearing, uh, I think I've heard all my life, uh, that the Roman Catholics say, give me a child till he's six, and he's... He'll be mine from yeah. yeah, yeah. That's here. That's here. Yeah. And even more so when you know that at six or seven or whatever, you have to give him back over. You're going to be even more intense and intensive in making sure he knows. And, and they're Levites. And they're Levites, right? So they're they're devoted anyway, right? And and don't you think that they're sitting there saying, okay, they know what Abraham was promised. They do the math. Hmm. It's been just about 400 years. This is a miracle baby. This is a baby who should be not even alive. And yet not only is he alive, but he's going to be raised in Pharaoh's home in his palace. And he is going to uh, uh, know about our people. And, you know, he's... He's here for a reason. I think his mother and father, and being Levites also, knowing the promise, knowing what God has said, knowing it's 400 years, knowing now what's happened to Moses, which is a miracle. He's a miracle baby. And he's going to have this influence in Pharaoh's household. I think they also so said, you know what, son? You're the one. You have to be the one. You're going to be the one that's going to have an influence to deliver our people. So I think that answers the first two questions. How do you know he was uh, Israelite? His mom and dad taught him. How did he know he was going to deliver Israel? His mom and dad taught him. How did they know? Because they knew the scripture and they knew the promise and they knew the time and they knew that this was a special child because he was a fine child and now he's a miracle baby. So I just wonder also, uh, he evidently kept up with Miriam because she went with him later. Yeah. So she could have had a big influence. Yeah, so exactly. So I don't think he totally cut off his family. I think he had interaction with them as he grew up but not as much as the Egyptian family. So let's finish this off. We're running out of time. So verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in, in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That's the answer we're going to, question we're going to answer later. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, oh, my son needs something. So, okay. So, um, uh, thing of, I said, uh, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, 
what I did must have become known. Then Pharaoh heard of this. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So why, this answers the question, why did he leave? Why did he run away? He was afraid. Why was he afraid? Why did, first of all, Moses would not have been in trouble if he killed the Israelite, right? He's only in trouble because he killed the Egyptian. It'd be like a slave killing the owner, you know. Correct. really bad. Exactly. But look what it says. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. There was no grace given. And why? Why did it immediately was this Pharaoh's response? Here's what I think. Give you the answer that, that I think. And that is that Pharaoh never accepted Moses. Never accepted Moses as part of his family or part of his court. He didn't, I don't think Pharaoh liked it. Pharaoh wasn't on board with this. When his daughter brings back this baby who's a Hebrew who he said should die, and his daughter says, sorry, Dad, I'm keeping him. He's mine. You, you know, like it or lump it. Pharaoh never, never opened his arms to Moses, never accepted him, never wanted him to be part of anything. This was completely contradictory and contravened what he said should happen. So I think he put up with Moses, but the whole time for those 40 years, I think Pharaoh was just looking for an opportunity, just looking for a chance, just looking for the first, the first thing that he could get Moses out of the palace and out of the kingdom and out of the country, hopefully. And so as soon as he finds out Moses kills the Egyptian, this gives him his chance to say to his daughter, sorry, that's it. He's out and I'm going to kill him if I can because of what he did. So I think there was this thing going on, uh, the struggle inside the palace in Egypt where his daughter is like, this is Moses, my son, I love him, blah, blah. And, and Pharaoh is just biting his tongue saying, he's just biting his tongue saying, well, I'm going to get this kid someday. And this was his chance to do it. So I think that answers the question of why he why he ran away, like immediately, right? He didn't even wait. And I'm thinking, well, he must have known that Pharaoh had it in for him and that he was not going to get a second chance here. So, all right, that's it for me today. We'll pick it up from there next week. So. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.